Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am thrilled to be talking all things hormones, actually hormone testing, uh, with Lylan Ferris. She's a naturopathic physician like myself. Actually, she graduated from uh, National College of Natural Medicine. Uh, as I did also. Uh, Dr. Ferris is with Doctors Data, and we're going to be just moving through um, saliva, urine, and serum hormone testing, choosing the best test for each patient. Let me give you a little bit of a background on Dr. Ferris, and we will jump in. So she went to Davidson College for undergrad, uh, where she got a BA in cultural anthropology and a minor in art history. Um, she did lots of traveling and witnessing different cultures and different ways of thinking. And from that, realized pursuing naturopathic medicine was her calling. She trained uh, her honor basic sciences in Australia, then came back to the United States. And as I said, she went to um, my alma mater, uh, now called National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. And she continues to practice medicine there, um, as well as consult with Dr. Stata. Uh, she does a lot of teaching. She did a residency with Dr. Kimberly Winstar, who's um, an ND gynecologist, kind of legendary in our field. So that was quite a great residency for her. She's been teaching uh, uh, gynecology classes and continues to mentor uh, medical students. She's taught all over the globe. She has actually uh, webinars and seminars. In fact, we'll link to some of Dr. Ferris's training in our show notes. Um, she's senior staff physician at Doctors Data. She leads a team of, of doctors focusing on educating practitioners globally on hormone and neurotransmitter test results and optimization. And she maintains a practice in Oregon. Uh, she focuses on women's health, uh, but also works with men and uh, actually males and females of all ages. So you're working with peds. Uh, welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Ferris. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so pleased to join you. So as you and I were dialoguing, you know, our paths have fortunately crossed a few times and you were um, you were in school when I was and, and, and we were catching up a little bit. Actually, you were a little before me only because you, you would have been ahead of me, but you had some kids and then you came back yeah. and finished. And and you and I were talking about um, cycling. I was a huge committed cyclist back then and, and, and just fondly recollecting, sort of always walking around with my helmet. And you remembered that, which is really funny. But we spent a lot of time watching the Tour de France, like all through med school. It was a big deal for us. And, and, and we're, we're just in Tour de France season now. And, you know, you were bringing up Lance Armstrong and, of course, you know, even back then, of course, we, we, we all thought he was doping, but he got away with it for forever. And, and I, so you were talking about it being just a really great example about how to test for hormones, like what medium is the correct way to do it and using him as an, as an example. So I want to know that story. I want to circle back and just have you unpack that and what, you know, what the, it's, I think it's, the, I, I forget the, the, the regulating body, but what they should have done to catch Lance way back in the day. So before we go back to that teaser for the cyclists out there, um, just talk to me about the main mediums for testing uh, hormones. 
Well, there's three main mediums, serum, urine, and saliva. And what I'm excited to talk to you about today is really the pros and cons and the appropriate times to test in each of them. You know, the comparison of testing mediums, I think, has somehow gotten a little bit controversial in the field of functional medicine. In my opinion, though, it's like fighting over apples and oranges and pears because in the question is, is one of those fruits better than the other? The answer is no, they're all amazing. I love them all, but I'll choose them for different reasons. And the same is true for hormone testing. So one of the main takeaways I hope people leave with today is that there's no wrong way to test hormones, but there are certain pros and cons of each method. And we simply need to be aware of those so that we can choose the medium that's most appropriate for the given situation. So talk about, um, I mean, do you want to give me a little background on, on steroid hormone physiology or uh, you know what, actually let's just move, let's just move through the three specimen types and, and, and talk about them. And then from that context, you can give me a little background in physiology or, or, or if we're going, you know, what we're going to taste test baseline in and so forth. So walk me through serum, like when is it a good option? When isn't it, you know, what are its limitations? Um, yeah. Yeah. I will. Let me just preface that though, by giving you one little sort of tidbit of steroid hormone physiology, because this really is the important point when you're trying to choose the right place to test. So remember that steroid hormones are made with a cholesterol backbone. So like cholesterol, steroid hormones are not soluble in water. They're hydrophobic. Also, we can say they're lipophilic, they're fat loving, they're water hating. So this is an important concept because urine and serum are water-based where saliva is more favorable to lipids. So because these hormones are hydrophobic, when they're in watery environments, they have to either be bound to a protein carrier or conjugated. Right. So that's sort of the, just the basis of the chemistry today. We don't have to really get into it deeply, but that's the basis. Well, it doesn't that just, be, doesn't that mean that when you're looking at um, urine, you're going to be looking at metabolites because they've yeah. been conjugated, right? Exactly. exactly. Okay. okay. All right. So that is a good to, tidbit. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So when it comes to serum, you know, to answer your question, that's a watery um, medium. So if we think about some of the advantages to testing in serum, it's very widely available. Everyone accepts it as a mainstream marker. It's super convenient. So if a, if a patient is in a hospital or clinic setting, typically there are people there who can draw their blood and it will provide a quick snapshot of total levels at the time of the draw. It's the best place to look for polar molecules. So these are things like thyroid hormone, prolactin, LH, FSH, um, but the steroid hormones that we're really talking about today are, the, are non-polar, they're hydrophobic. The polar molecules like thyroid hormone are water-soluble, and so you, they are best tested in serum because their polarity allows them to float freely in the bloodstream. That's not true with the steroid hormones. So if, then if we think about some of the disadvantages to testing in serum, um, that snapshot that I mis mentioned, if you, you know, you just get a quick blood draw, you get a snapshot of uh, the hormones at that point in time, that single point testing can be potentially a disadvantage in serum when testing hormones, because hormones are secreted in a pulsatile manner over the course of the day. So it's difficult to know whether the level that you see reported is representing a peak or a valley or something in between. And that might change your treatment approach depending on the value you see. Um, 
it's potentially stressful for people who don't love needles. Yeah. And you're also limited to getting to a place where someone can actually do that blood draw. So that could be potentially inconvenient to a patient if who needs to report, you know, potentially four times over the course of the day or on a certain day of the month, depending on what you're looking for uh, with serum, uh, excuse me, with hormone testing. Um, one of the most important reasons though, that I think serum has some limitations is because of that uh, molecular structure of the steroid hormones. When hormones are in serum, they have to be bound to a protein carrier because they are hydrophobic. And right. so it's very difficult to get an idea of what the free or bioavailable fraction of the hormone is in serum because those binding proteins can actually obscure hormone levels. And this is especially true if a woman is taking an oral estrogen, which will increase sex hormone binding globulin. And so testosterone might be more bound up, um, potentially cortisol as well. Oral estrogen can increase cortisol binding globulin and bind up some of the cortisol that you would expect to see, which again, might sort of obscure hmm. uh, the expected values. What do you think about free testosterone in serum? I mean, we get it all the time. Is that a reliable... Biomarker? It, can be, it can be, especially if, so typically if we're, you know, the free androgen index is a good uh, calculation of trying to determine the amount of testosterone that's free, looking at the sex hormone binding globulin and the total testosterone and, and doing that calculation, but it's a calculation. It's not a direct measurement. It's right. better if they're measuring the patient's sex hormone binding globulin levels directly. Although some labs will just sort of take an, an average value for SHBG and throw that into the ratio. So um, just make sure if you're using something like a free androgen index um, that you're getting the, your actual patient's SHBG levels to put into that ratio. So you can do some calculations to try to estimate free values in serum. But again, these are calculations, not direct measurements. So right. there's a potential for error. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Actually, this is a really nice description. It sounds kind of like a crapshoot. Well, be, given the re, the pulsatile release of them as well, what when are when are they best assessed in serum? I think most people agree the morning is best. Um, but if you uh, look at uh, labs, have done collections for women every five minutes, every ten minutes throughout the course of the day, and, and you can see that these values are just up and down, up and down, up and down because they pulse. And so time of day, I don't know that there really is the best time of day to do it. I mm -hmm. think when it comes to um, measuring hormones because of that pulsatile nature, mediums that allow you to get an average of the hormones over the course of the day might provide uh, information that is a little bit more valuable when it comes to choosing whether therapy, hormone therapy might be appropriate. What about if you're postmenopausal though, and you're really not making a heck of a lot of them or you're, you know, you're in andropause and I mean is, is and you're taking and, and you might be taking exogenous hormone replacement is that variable less of an issue it endogenously it may be a little bit less of an issue in andropause or menopause if you're talking about monitoring therapy though we're back yes. to okay. sort of the previous question about bound versus bioavailable and that sort of thing and I'll yep. talk a little bit more about that as we move through the mediums, because um, when we talk about saliva in particular, um, I'll elaborate on some of the limitations of serum. Okay. All right. Let me just ask you one more question about serum and then, yep. um, you know, and then we'll move on to the other 
mediums. What about cortisol? I mean, we, it, again, it's super easy. You can just give somebody a lab slip and they go to Quest and we can get a first cortisol draw, a first morning cortisol draw or something like that. But is it, is it useful? Uh, it, it'll give I mean, you a glimpse, but I think there are some particular drawbacks when it comes to testing cortisol. One is that concept, again, of the binding protein. So especially if oral estrogen is being used, and this could be Premarin, or this could be a birth control pill, this could be any type of oral estrogen, it will increase cortisol binding globulin, which can obscure free levels. Also, if you want to test diurnal cortisol, that requires four collections over the course of the day. So four blood draws over the course of the day is not ideal for anyone, not only because it's a time management issue, but think about the needles involved. You know, a lot of people have white coat hypertension or they just don't love needles. And if that is causing stress in your patient, that can potentially affect cortisol secretion. Sure. Yeah. I don't know anyone who does that. I, I, I'm sure there are some clinicians out there, you know, sending people off for a day at the, you know, horrible day at the lab, but yeah, not, not too much. It just doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. Um, do you recommend serum for monitoring hormone replacement? It really or- depends on the route of administration. So I find that if your patients are using pellets or injections or patches, um, serum is probably an okay place to look. But if you're uh, using transdermal or transmucosal therapies, it's not ideal. Um, so that's my short answer. Okay. 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 And I want to know, are you using Are you using serum in practice? Very little these days. Sometimes if insurance, you know, if, if, you know, cash payments are problematic, we'll rely on serum. But in general, I don't rely on serum for hormone testing these days. Okay. Okay. Um, and what about urine? Talk to me about, um, you know, just the same kind of body of questions that we went through with serum advantages, disadvantages, et cetera. Sure. Uh, well, you know, one of the advantages we talked about people who don't love needles and I know a lot of my patients really don't love them. So when you're testing urine, there's no needles. It's a non-invasive way of testing. Um, what I love about urinary testing is it's the only way to see how the body is metabolizing hormones. It allows us to take that deeper dive into how the hormones via their metabolites can affect physiology. A lot of people like to keep an eye on cortisol metabolites. You know, the free cortisol that we see in saliva is really a small percentage of the total that we make over the course of the day. And so monitoring cortisol metabolites can provide a deeper dive into what's going on. You know, is it the production of cortisol or the metabolism of it that's influencing cortisol levels? Um, Some people like to keep an eye on the androgen metabolites to monitor that 5-alpha reductase pathway. Um, Maybe keep an eye on dihydrotestosterone and things like that. Some people really value it for the estrogen metabolites. You know, they like to monitor the conversion of the hydroxy forms to the less carcinogenic methoxy forms. Um, And I like to use urine in conjunction with saliva testing because it allows me to determine if an elevation or a deficit of a hormone found there is actually an issue related to the secretion of an analyte or to the metabolism of that analyte. Right. Yeah. I think we're just in a whole new era with regard to uh, what we can see with, you know, relatively routine testing, you know, that mm-hmm. we can look at these metabolites. It's very, it's really empowering for us as clinicians. And I think, 
you know, satisfying for patients, you know, for us to be able to look at some of these potentially toxic ones and to be able to manipulate them and change them around and sort of get more of a drill down on the kind of root cause of, of imbalances with these metabolites. Um, right. I, you know, you, again, t- you, we, we spent quite a bit of time dialoguing before we jumped on our recording, but we, I'm, Dr. Seda is going to be offering a really nice look at the metabolites. Do you want to um, tell me a little bit about that? Oh, I would love to. So we have spent years in R&D researching the best and most accurate way to test these urine samples. Um, we have determined that liquid urine gives us the most reliable and reproducible numbers. So the doctor's data test will include several liquid collections over the course of the day. Um, doctor's data u- utilizes mass spectrometry, a liquid chromatography mass spec to analyze the urine. Um, and the lab has devised some ways to optimize sample extraction and processing of these samples. Um, so in that in combination with the mass spec machines, which are highly sensitive, mm-hmm. um, are allowing us to reliably measure clinically relevant analytes, some of which are present in such low concentrations that they really haven't been previously available. Yeah, um, right. Like 2-methoxy for, for starters. I know there's some places that report it, but I know that's tough. And yeah, you're looking at, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, tell me. yeah exactly. Two, we're, we're going to have two additional methoxy estrogen metabolites um, oh. to help provide a more comprehensive picture of COMT activity. Um, and also, uh, so there'll be four methoxy estrone and four methoxy estradiol, which we're excited about. Wow. Huh. And one of the ones I'm particularly excited about is allopregnolol. Yeah, that you read my mind. Yeah. <laughs> when I, <Yay>. yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool that you're going to do that. And that is tough to see. Yeah. And, and we've been able to find it. And I'm excited to be able to monitor it because this is a, um, a compound that I will often try to push clinically with oral progesterone. Sure. You know, um, all progesterone eventually becomes allopregnenolone, um, which acts as a GABA receptor agonist, but oral progesterone is especially efficient at raising allopregnenolone levels because of yep. the liver's first pass effect on progesterone. Um, and so this test is going to allow me to see what endogenous allopregnenolone levels are, or to evaluate if the supplementation I'm recommending, you know, is effectively raising it the way I am intending it to. So I'm excited about that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. So this is the all important sort of anxiolytic sort of brain protective progesterone metabolite that we are, you know, we speak a lot about and to have some evidence on whether we're actually successfully raising it in our patients is just extremely useful. And then also too, I just want to reiterate that you're absolutely, that you're breaking down the, are dividing the metabolites into um, E1 and E2. So the 2-methoxyestrone yeah. and 2-methoxyestradiol and, and as well as 4, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, is, 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 is exciting for us. I think, um, I think clinicians will be, uh, you know, will find some value in this. Um, and how do you use urine in your practice to evaluate your interventions? I mean, you've just spoken about some of them, but is there, you know, how are you, if you, you've got a, you've got a man on um, exogenous testosterone, for instance, how might you use the panel? Well, I like to see how he is metabolizing that testosterone, where, you know, where is it going? What, what mischief might it get into? 
Um, but honestly, I've, I think the things I find most valuable about estrogen, because I, I don't tend to run them as often on my male patients, but with my female patients, I really like to keep an eye on the cortisol metabolites. I really like to keep an eye on the estrogen metabolites and see which pathways a woman might be favoring to make sure that, you know, methylation is supported, um, that sort of thing. Yep. Absolutely. That makes sense. I think that's kind of what we're all doing. Okay. So let's circle over to saliva. Um, same thing, advantages, disadvantages. I know you're using this in your practice a lot. Um, you know, we can talk about sex hormones, maybe talk about cortisol. Go for it. Yeah. Well, the main advantage to saliva, I think, is that you're able to actually measure the active or bioavailable unbound portion of the sex steroid hormones. So back to that steroid hormone physiology, um, let's think about the way endogenous hormones are secreted. So when these are secreted from the ovaries or the testes or the adrenals, they're actually wrapped up in these protein envelopes. These are those carriers, sex hormone binding globulin, cortisol binding globulin, et cetera. And this allows them to float freely in the serum. But these protein bound hormones are not fully biologically active. When we think about the relevant hormone to uh, what's pushing symptoms in our patients, it's the free portion that's estimated to be between about one and 10%. Um, that's the bio biologically active portion and saliva contains only that biologically active fraction. Um, so that's really where I think it shines. Um, but additionally, you know, here we've got no needles. Saliva samples are really easy to collect, especially if multiple samples are needed or the timing of the sample is important. So think about the cortisol awakening response when that first sample needs to be collected within five minutes of waking up or diurnal cortisol when you're collecting several times over the course of the day or a luteal surge collection when you need to make sure you're collecting on a specific day of the month. And when we think about that pulsatile nature that hormones are secreted in, um, saliva can manage that by giving you an average. So when you test with doctor's data, even if you're not looking at cortisol, doctor's data recommends that patients collect four saliva samples over the course of the day. The lab then takes a small aliquot from each tube to create a pooled tube. And it's from this tube that sex hormones are tested. So this strategy avoids catching a peak or a trough and gives providers an average of the sex hormones, which we have found to be a more reliable value that you can base your therapeutic recommendations on. So it's basically, you're basically looking at sort of a surrogate for a 24 hour collection. Yeah, exactly. And it's reliable, saliva is sufficient for us to evaluate patient response to hormones regardless of the delivery route, would you say? Or is there, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes, so, you know, it's really the only reliable place to test transdermal or transmucosal therapies. Um, and this is because, well, it's actually pretty complicated. So let me go through some of the mechanisms at play. So think about transdermal hormones. We apply them to the skin. They're absorbed very freely through the skin and they're largely not bound to those protein carriers like sex hormone binding globulin. So let me use progesterone as an example. Mm -hmm. We apply progesterone cream to the skin. The capillary beds are right under the, uh, the epidermis. It's quickly absorbed and it's not coated with a protein carrier like SHBG, but it is picked up 
by red blood cell membranes. So these transdermal hormones now are quickly absorbed. They show, testing shows that the absorption shows up in saliva in minutes, indicating that it has been well absorbed. And then it moves through the bloodstream attached to these red blood cells, which are carriers for transdermal hormones. But the bonds are pretty weak. So when these red blood cells move through capillaries, the hormone pretty easily moves into the cells. These steroid hormones are lipid soluble, so they freely diffuse through these cell membranes. And once they're in the cells, they enter the nucleus and affect cell function and metabolism. That's their function. But once these hormones have um, produced these reactions, they're catabolized within the cell. So they're never again seen in their initial form. So now we can monitor these hormones in their metabolized forms, but not in their original form. Um, so that's why urine is the best place to look for metabolites because these hormones are absorbed and utilized and then they're in their metabolized form. Um, additionally, if we think about monitoring transdermal hormone supplementation in serum and why that might not be the best place, we have to think about the way that serum is handled. So we draw blood from a woman, for instance, who has applied transdermal progesterone and that hormone was attached to the red blood cells. But to get the serum, the blood is spun down and those red blood cells are discarded along with the transdermal hormones that are attached to mm. them. So this is why serum is not necessarily a great method to measure transdermal or uh, sublingual hormones. You can just um, wildly miss therapy. Yeah, and exactly. that's been your experience. You've it has. Absolutely. Okay. Do you want to give me an example of that? Yeah, I will. Actually, I had this really interesting case. A 61-year-old woman came to see me. She was about seven years into menopause, and she had been seeing another provider who had put her on um, estradiol, estriol, progesterone, testosterone, all at dosages that I felt like were pretty reasonable. The testosterone dose, if I recall, was about uh, 0.25 milligrams. Um, but her hot flashes were getting worse where they, as they, they had improved for a time, but they were worse. And she was experiencing some uh, weight gain around the middle. And she was pretty unhappy with that. So we tested her saliva and the results showed that the testosterone value was over a thousand, which I would not expect with a dosage of 0.25 milligrams. That's mm -hmm. pretty conservative. And her estradiol, she was taking about one milligram of bias in a four to one ratio, which means that was just 0.2 of estradiol. Her estradiol level was, I think, over about eight. Uh, and the range goes up to 3.2. Um, or the, excuse me, the supplementation range, I think goes up to about six. So it was elevated. So it didn't seem to be reflective of her hormone therapy. So it made me wonder what was going on. And when I talked to her um, in a little more depth, I realized her husband was actually using testosterone cream. He was using an androgel in a 50 milligram potency. And uh, it seemed that she was getting exposed to him. So we had him do a saliva test and his testosterone was greater than 6,000, which is our detection limit. So nobody knows how high it actually was. His estradiol was also uh, very elevated. And so in serum, both of those uh, patients had normal testosterone and estradiol values but we could right. see in saliva that they were quite elevated. That transdermal testosterone that he was taking was being um, transferred to her just in the normal course of being a married couple, skin to skin contact, even surfaces in the home. You know, 50 sure. milligrams of androgel is, is a lot of, of gel. 
And so if extreme care is not taken, people will touch the faucet, they'll touch the light switch, they'll touch right. the remote control, and then the spouse touches those things as well. And it's pretty easy to have exogenous exposure. So saliva testing is actually a pretty great tool for, for um, catching exogenous exposure and helping to uh, identify the cause for, for symptoms. You know, if you have a, a woman come in and suddenly she's got um, hirsutism right. and she's not using any hormones, but her husband is often, if you test her, you'll find that she's being exposed and, uh, but, but serum would not necessarily uh, show that. That's interesting. So their provider, you know, doing right by them, I'm sure was ordering plenty of serums and probably head scratching as to why they weren't, you know, responding. Um, but in exactly. fact they were. That's yeah, exactly and right. And, and the story I got from him was that his symptoms uh, were better for a time, but then they started to come back. And so the provider was raising the androgel dosage. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what you see here is tachyphylaxis. So essentially they become, the receptors begin to downregulate because there's mm -hmm. so much hormone present. And if you're looking in serum and not seeing a change, you may assume, oh, well, we need to give more and more hormone, but in fact, less hormone is probably needed so that we can eventually have receptors begin to upregulate again to become more responsive to the hormone that they need. Really interesting. And then of course, both of them were aromatizing the testosterone yes. over to estrogen, hence yeah. their, their, their mutual high estrogen levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great case. So I, so, so, you know, again, in your practice, you're doing saliva are you starting with saliva and then going to urine after a period of time but it looks to you you, you do both specimen um do you look you want to look at urine to just make sure they're metabolizing it appropriately so do you do you That's look right. after you've after you've done therapy for a while like how do you what is your testing structure i i always start with saliva um saliva and to my way of thinking is is you know the cortisol awakening response can only be monitored in saliva diurnal cortisol is really the gold standard for saliva. Um, looking at hormone values, whether they're endogenous or um, supplementation values, because I pretty much solely uh, will use transdermal hormones, occasionally oral with things like progesterone if I'm pushing allopregnenolone or maybe DHEA, which I think is pretty well utilized orally. But otherwise I prefer transdermal because of the avoidance of the first pass. Sure. So saliva is the best medium. Uh, to monitor those. But then I think urine becomes really uh, an effective tool because I do want to see with that supplementation or even with endogenous um, levels, what happens to the hormone after it leaves that initial sort of parent state, where is it going? What might those uh, metabolites, how might they be affecting physiology? And you're doing this for hormone naive patients, uh, as well as, as well as folks who are, who are on some form of replacement? Well, so I think for, for any hormone naive patient, you can use any testing medium if you want to test baseline levels. Um, so that's pretty straightforward before hormone supplementation is utilized, pick your favorite, depending on what you're looking for. Um, because again, urine is not going to give you a great indication of, of bioavailable hormones, but You'll, you'll get a good idea of what's going on. Really, I think it becomes more important to choose the correct 
method when you're using supplementation. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to understand how hormone supplementation is influencing metabolism and excretion, you're always going to want to look in urine. But if you're monitoring patients who use transdermal hormones to try to see what those therapeutic bioavailable levels are, saliva is always going to be your best choice. And, and this is treat, this could be bioidentical hormone or, or, or conventional, you know, or yeah. conventional, but also this is going to be botanicals and maybe supplements. So any, anything that you're doing to move mm-hmm. sex hormone status, you, you can use this testing structure. Mm-hmm. I want to, this isn't, this is a conversation about labs. Um, we're not talking about treatment to affect metabolism, but are, is, is the doctor's data team available to clinicians? Does the report offer some guidance around how you might affect uh, improved metabolism? Yeah. Yeah. Both of those are true. So uh, there'll be commentary to help guide treatment. There are resource guides created to help support people in choosing correct treatments. And then we have a team of clinicians who are available during business hours, Monday through Friday, um, who are always happy to talk to providers about next steps, you know, what therapies might be appropriate, that sort of thing. Many of us continue to do serum. I mean, honestly, myself included, I don't only do serum, but you know, I will, I do, I do use it relatively routinely. I think certainly in part because it's been so accepted among, you know, the, 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 the greater medical community. And also it's, you know, it's relatively easy uh, in some ways. Yeah. Um, and, and we do indeed see changes. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I just want to ask you about that. What are your thoughts? Well, it's a very fair question. Um, but again, let's think about the structure of these hormones and how they behave in fatty versus watery environments. What I have observed is that it seems to be only when the absorbed hormone exceeds the carrying capacity of the fatty material in the blood which is usually red blood cells, that it will sort of slop over, so to speak. Right. Into the so I'm really talking about transdermal hormones here. If you're right, using right. oral therapies and that sort of thing, you're more likely to see a change um, in serum. But with transdermal, you're really only going to see a change in serum if you're giving so much hormone that, that it exceeds the carrying capacity of those binding proteins. So essentially, it means that patient is getting more hormone than their body can utilize, AKA being overdosed. The fact that transdermal hormone supplementation is not easily seen in serum has been somewhat controversial, I think, in functional medicine. And what practitioners have often concluded from this is that the hormone is not going into the body. And this has often led patients to being overdosed because their practitioners are trying to see that rise in serum. Um, But we understand through the testing of various tissues that these hormones are being absorbed. It just isn't in the blood that's returning to the heart, which is what we're measuring in venous blood. So sometimes I'll explain it to my patients like I do with oxygenated blood. You know, blood going back to the heart is depleted of oxygen because it's already gone into the tissues. Same is true with hormones. If you're testing in venous blood and saying that there's nothing there, you might be missing the big picture. And, and this is probably why some providers say they don't like saliva testing mm-hmm. because they'll, I'll hear people say, well, when I test saliva, the hormones are always high. And so it's not yes. reliable. Um, but I think if you're prescribing transdermal or transmucosal hormone therapies and you're monitoring in serum, and then you decide to check saliva, it's very likely 
that you're going to find elevated hormone levels. So are you, so for, for the other routes of delivery, I mean, are you still with, with oral delivery, are you, is, is saliva sufficiently adequate or would you get concurrent serum? I find that saliva is adequate. Um, but if serum is your preferred method, monitoring oral is going to be a little bit more successful there. Okay. You know, I find that all mediums can be utilized for baseline testing. When it comes to oral therapies, I think you can look in serum or saliva. For things like pellets or IM therapies, you can monitor in saliva, serum, or urine, but with the caveats that we've discussed, right? In urine, you're really looking at downstream metabolites, not bioavailable, what's in the tissues. Um, but but important, you know, I think because transdermal hormone therapies are so popular because they avoid first pass, yes. it's important to remember that serum and urine will typically grossly underestimate tissue uptake, which can lead to overdosing. Yeah, right. As you just, you know, as your case was, you know, clearly illustrated. And I think we've all seen that. And I think we've all followed up a lot of us anyway, who have had the same sort of head scratch. Why is there such a difference in saliva versus what I'm seeing in serum? So you've done a, just a terrific job answering that for me. I want to circle back to Lance Armstrong, <laughs> if you don't mind, <laughs> and just kind of get the lowdown on, on what was going on. Yeah. Well, so Lance and his teammates had a lot of ways to avoid detection, but one of them was that they were administering testosterone sublingually because they knew that this type of supplementation would not be reflected in the serum and the urine testing that was commonly administered to these athletes at the time. So he was, oh, wow. Yeah. So he was able to exploit a weakness in the anti-doping testing system. Oh my gosh. How clever. I didn't know that they were doing it sublingually and they were, wow. And they certainly paid attention, right. To where the, how, how it would present in the various specimen. Yeah. Oh my God. But you know, the anti-doping docs have gotten wise because yeah. uh, now studies have been done that, that promote saliva as a better screen for doping these athletes. So it's going to be harder and harder for them uh, to use those particular methods to avoid detection. They'll find some others, though. I'm, 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 I'm sure. I'm quite certain. <laughs> Undoubtedly. <laughs> I still, I still like the Tour de France, and I'm watching it now, so it's, 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 it's exciting. Um, well, listen, uh, I just want to thank you, Dr. Ferris, for coming and giving this really clear, uh, very user-friendly um, interview with me today. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of us out there in the in the space testing hormones and, and, and treating different hormone imbalances. So, you know, just thank you so much for joining me on New Frontiers. I'm excited about the new uh, test coming out. I'm thrilled to see allopregnenolone. Uh, that, that'll, be, that'll be great. And any last, any last words of wisdom or thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, I, you know, we're not exactly sure when our uh, urine test will be available in the next few months, we're hoping, but I do just want to uh, plug it for a second. You know, one of the things we're most excited about uh, in offering this test is that um, doctor's data gives providers the option to do so many functional tests that can inform metabolite testing. So not only can you do a urinary metabolite test, but you can add on neurotransmitter testing to those same samples to test neurotransmitter levels because those are also, you know, uh, influenced by the COMT enzymes, which help 
you know, inform estrogen metabolism and that sort of thing. Um, if you can add on salivary hormones, you can test methylation, you can do beta-glucuronidase testing on its own or as part of a GI360 because beta-glucuronidase can affect circulating estrogens and whether or not they're uh, reabsorbed. And so, you know, doctor's data really is here to support providers in whatever way they need. You know, we offer urine and saliva and hormone testing as well as adjunct testing like the neurotransmitter testing, the methylation profiles, the microbiome testing, all the tools that can help practitioners uh, provide comprehensive support for their patients. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Ferris. And, you know, again, just thank you for joining me on New Frontiers. And this is very useful. Folks, turn to the show notes for information on this conversation. We'll link to some other lectures uh, that Dr. Ferris has, has given and, you know, any additional tidbits that you would like to share with us. Um, Lylan, we'll just pop onto the show notes. Thanks, Kara. It was a pleasure.